I thought that, um, that I would make sure at the outset that I do not come at this message in particular as an expert. Uh, I come uh, confidently and boldly only because of God's word. I do not come confidently and boldly because of my own achievements. We're going to talk about contentment. I dare say this is a difficulty um, for most of us, if not all of us. Um, one of those um, unattainable goals that we are always striving toward in this life. And so this morning, I, I want you, um, I'm going to pray in a minute. I, I really want you to think about um, what God might be saying to you this morning about the things, the possessions, the personalities in your life um, that test your contentment, whether or not um, you can be content with those things. I, I do want us to to, to think um, in that manner. Um, what a fantastic set of songs to think about, though. Um, it is well with my soul by a man who's um, on an ocean liner in the Atlantic watching the place where his daughters drowned. Um, it's the, a good song to, to think about what that means to really be content um, through all of life. So I want to pray, and then I want to dive into two passages. A little different this morning because it's topical. So we're going to dive in might be too might be too deep we're going to put our toes in in uh two passages in the new testament take a look at some other passages and just make some observations that hopefully will help us this week as we think about contentment all right so let's go to the lord in prayer i'm just going to give you about 30 seconds to be to be quiet and to think about um what in your life you need to surrender to god and and work on being content with Lord, this morning we come a needy people. We, um, we, we drive uh, nice cars and we wear nice clothes and we um, have so much and um, can very easily uh, think that we have things all together. But Lord, uh, I know my own heart and I suspect in the hearts of many in this room that, that the sin of covetousness um, is... Uh, slinking around in our souls, Lord, that the temptations um, are, are everywhere is is um, is obvious. And so, God, what we need this morning is not clever words. Um, what we need this morning is an intense focus on who you are, what you have done, and what you have said to us in your words. So, God, we need you to do what we can't. We need you to do heart surgery. We need you to to expose, um, we need you to convict, and Lord, we need you then to restore and rebuild us. God, that you would continue to make us more like Jesus, that you would use this morning as an opportunity, uh, maybe a painful opportunity, um, to do that. God, we're so, we're so grateful for, for what you've done. We're so grateful for bringing um, us here this morning, even to this place. So God, uh, help us to go away from here challenged, um, Lord, uh, but for those of us who are Christians, who are followers of Jesus, that we would go away encouraged um, because of what we study this morning. So Lord, do your work in Jesus' name. Amen. You could turn in your Bibles to uh, Philippians chapter 4. My wife Amy rightly challenged my first, my, my title. <laughs> it looks a little suspect. Learning the secret of Christian contentment. I will defend myself, though, um, as a very good critique because that does sound um, a little prosperity gospel-ish or something. We'll see here in Philippians 4 that Paul actually uses the word secret, that he has learned the secret. And if if Paul has learned the secret, then we ought to really want to know, ooh, 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 what's the secret? (laughs) Tell me, I want to know. The secret, and in this case, it's Christian contentment. And I want to, I want to say that it's Christian contentment. Okay, so th- this is, this is Christian contentment we're talking about this morning. If you're not a Christian this morning, this is going to be a struggle, um, unless the Holy Spirit opens your heart in the middle of the sermon, which would be fantastic. But this is, um, this is contentment from the uh, lens of those who have been saved, who are being sanctified by the Lord and who are moving in the direction of godliness. And in that context, we want to talk about contentment. So I looked and Pastor Ron preached on um, Philippians 4 back in 2009. Uh, he, we preached on 
1 Timothy 6 uh, just in this past year. And so these are passages that we have gone over and I will not go into the, all the details that we might want to go into here. But I do want to point out some helpful things um, from these passages. So let's look at just four verses in Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. No doubt we are very familiar with verse 13. Um, A passage, I dare say, that has been abused um, in many ways. Um, but a beautiful passage when seen in its context to help us think through um, what Paul is teaching us here about contentment. I want you to remember that the writer of this letter was sitting in a Roman prison cell when he wrote this. So this is not written from the study. This is not written from the den. This is not at the kitchen table. Um, This is not in uh, an advantageous position. This is written from prison. This is written from a place that's not that comfortable. Written from a place um, that does not smack of contentment. Uh, And yet this is the place that Paul writes this from. And so we, we have to pay attention to the context to see what Paul has for us. I even want to point out verse 12, um, the secret. That, that's a, a word in Greek that was used for initiation into secret societies. Um, it was a, a way of entrance into um, a group or, or a club, it might be said. Um, this is the way into something. So when Paul says he's learned the secret, um, he has entered into uh, a, a unique place where he is able to do something he had not been able to do before. He's, he's learned the secret. He's entered in. And so we, we want to learn the secret this morning of Christian contentment. The, the word um, content or contentment, we'll, we'll actually talk about the word specifically a, a little more later. Um, but the Greek word speaks to self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency. Um, it was a popular word at the time of Paul from a specific set of philosophers called the Stoics. And, and they preached this hard to be self-sufficient. And I think in, in, in our vernacular, self-sufficient is not something that we want to aim at. So we need to nuance the word a little bit. When we talk about contentment, uh, there, does, there is this, this idea of sufficiency, enough. There's an idea of independence, um, of having been loosed from other things and being able to be content. Um, but I, I love uh, this word from a commentator that I read. I, I couldn't say it better than he did. He said, Paul is not self-sufficient. He is Christ-sufficient. And that is clear because of where he goes in verse 13. So verse 13 does not, is not license for us to think that whatever we're doing, or whatever we want to do, or whatever we might think about doing, that we'll be able to do because Jesus gives us strength. Um, no doubt you have put this verse to the test and have been maybe a little puzzled. Wait a second. I thought that I can do all things. I wasn't able to do that thing. Therefore, I'm not able to do all things. What's going on here? Well, again, we, we cannot divorce a verse from its context. And so when Paul says he knows, verse 12, he knows how to be brought low and he knows how to abound. He he talks about two ends of a continuum, two ends. He knows how to have very little and he knows how to act when he has a lot. Um, For most of us in this room, that's the end that we're on. Right? Um, we, We are on the end of having a lot. You opened your closet this morning and you saw clothes. You saw clothes you haven't worn in months. Um, we have a lot. We have, we abound. And so when Paul says, in any and every circumstance, which doesn't leave out much, he says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Meaning, I can do this. I can be content in all these situations. I can adapt to the situation that I am in. Why? Not because I'm awesome. <laughs> That's not the message. Don't go home today thinking, 
oh, I'm awesome, I can do things. No, the message is, you're not awesome, and Jesus is. And so, if you're Christ-sufficient, not self-sufficient, then there is hope to be content. In wealth and abundance, Paul is Christ-sufficient. Think about his life, when he's hungry and he's beaten, when he's shipwrecked and he's exiled, when he's laying outside of a city because he was stoned and left for dead, he is Christ-sufficient, not self-sufficient. Throughout the, the, um, the works of Paul, he uses a phrase, in Christ, or in him. And he, he identifies us as believers that we're found in Christ, that our life is hidden in Christ. And this, this phrase crops up again and again. And I think even um, here in verse 13, we can see that. I can do all things through him. That could also be translated, in him. Um, and another commentator says this, that Paul's identity, Paul's thought process through saying, okay, I don't have a lot right now, or I do have a lot right now. How do I react? How do I act with this? This commentator said this, he is a man of Christ. As such, he takes what Christ brings. If it means plenty, he is a man of Christ, and that alone. If it means want, he is still a man of Christ, and he accepts deprivation as part of his understanding of discipleship. So this is, this is a big view of a big God. Um, this, is, this is a view that lifts itself up from circumstances and sees beyond the circumstances, sees beyond the, the people, sees beyond the possessions or the lack of them, and sees a God who is above them all. And in this way, he learns to be content. Uh, just a few quotes that I found really helpful in thinking about contentment. Um, Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers uh, from a couple centuries ago in London, said this, It is not how much we have, but how much we enjoy that makes happiness. And, and we know this to be true. Um, we, see, we see it in movies and in books. We see it in real life. Um, we're a celebrity-driven culture, and we see this, unfortunately, all the time. Um, by people that have way more than we could ever dream of and who don't want anything else but more and more. And it doesn't lead to anything but heartache and divorce and scandal and court. Um, this, is, this is all too often what we see. And, and Spurgeon points us to the enjoyment, which is not his made-up term. Look at Paul in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly at this whole situation. He's received money from the church. They, they've given him a financial gift to help him. And he rejoices. And throughout the book of Philippians, he says that as well. We're familiar that he says, uh, rejoice. And again, I will say rejoice, right? Um, this is, this is his, his theme throughout the book, that we are to live in joy. If you went through the book of Philippians, and maybe this is a good exercise this afternoon, is to go through and it's underlined every time it says rejoice or joy, and see just in a short letter how often Paul returns to this phrase. And so joy is, is very important to contentment. In fact, it, it, they're, they're inseparable. Um, this, is, this is the desire here for Spurgeon to say this is, you don't have to have a lot, but it doesn't matter if you have a lot if you don't enjoy what you have. Um, and so to enjoy what we have is, is really key to contentment. Um, if you've ever been to a third world country... You see this when you see children making up all kinds of games merely from the sticks and stones outside of their house. Um, you and I are familiar with our own upbringing. You, you no doubt remember Christmas morning um, and the present that you always wanted. And you remember Christmas afternoon when it was really boring and you needed a new toy. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's, how, that's how we were wired because we have so much. Um, I see it uh, all the time with my girls. I look around our room, our living room sometimes and I'm like, where did all this stuff come from and how can you say there's nothing to do? <laughs> I, you can't, we can't even walk across the floor without getting to a toy. And so if we don't enjoy what we have, it does not matter how much we have. We will not be content. An anonymous um, quote says this, which I think further helps us to think. True contentment is found not in having everything you want, but in not wanting to have everything. I'll repeat that. True contentment is found not in having everything you want, but in not wanting to have everything. Um, so I read that, and my first thought was my Amazon.com wish list. <laughs> Actually, all 17 of them. <laughs> uh, I have uh, wish lists uh, mostly for books. 
uh, that are in different topics, and then I have some other lists. Uh, and there's a lot of things on those lists. And I thought, and I go through them sometimes, and I go, oh, I added that book four years ago. Why haven't I bought it? Because there's like 300 other books on this list. That's why. And it's very important for us to see um, that we don't need to have everything, which is contrary to our culture. Just think of car commercials. Right? Think of how they're trying to rope you in, or, or any commercial for that matter, to buy something. Um, what, what, are, what is often appealed to, okay, is like either you deserve it, isn't it time you had this. Um, oftentimes there's unashamed uh, just reaching out to these people have it and they're cool and you don't, so you're not cool, why don't you get it? And unfortunately that works too often on us. But this is, this is the draw to have everything. And notice Paul, Paul does not say it's bad to have a lot of stuff. What he says is, I know how to be content when I don't have a lot of stuff. And this is the part we don't think about often. I also know how to be content when I do have a lot of stuff. Because sometimes we think contentment is just for people that don't have things. Well, be content. Be content with such things as you have. King James is even more holy, right? Be content with that. Because you don't have a lot. But I don't think we often um, challenge people that have a lot of things or ourselves to be content in, uh, in much, in abundance. And so um, there is this, this interesting tension. Um, Terry Hall mentioned this in our elder prayer this morning, that, that there's a tension in, um, in, in being content. That, that, that there's this, there's this real-life living and that we're supposed to strive and work hard and provide, and yet we need to be content with what we have. Um, and so we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. But Paul has, has learned the secret. Therefore, when he is in a more wealthy church and his tent-making business is doing well and he's got plenty of food and he's got plenty of this and plenty of that, he also knows how to be content. So he has not learned a one-dimensional secret. He has learned a holistic secret, meaning no matter what happens in life, I know how to be content. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to learn? Wouldn't that be great to know, I don't know what's going to happen the next 20, 30, 40, 70 years, but I know if I have little, I'll be, I can be content. I know that if I have a lot, I can be content. That would be, that would be something that would give you such security and confidence going ahead to know, Lord, I can, I can serve you, I can worship you, I can do what you call me to do because I know I can be content in whatever situation you put me in. That's an incredible thing that would stand out immensely in this world around us, wouldn't it? Let me show you what Paul says in this same letter is maybe not the opposite, but something that really points out why we need contentment. Just flip over, it might be on the same page, chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things... Hold on. What, what does that include? Okay, good. Everything. Okay. Making sure you're paying attention. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. So what things are you allowed to do with grumbling and disputing? Nothing. Okay. Just making sure we're clear. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, including going to an Angels and A's game. All right? That didn't turn out the way you wanted it to. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent Children of God without blemish, where? In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Folks, if we, don't, if we would eliminate grumbling and complaining, our light would get so much brighter. And I've got to think that, the, that eliminating complaining has a, a, an effect on how content we are. Because when we're complaining, we get into a spiral, don't we? And everything is, is, is worth complaining about. Um, and we, and we, we spiral down. And, and what we need to do is eliminate complaining from our vocabulary. Just uh, get rid of it. And go to God and say, this is what you provided for me. I'm content with this. I'm content with what you have given to me. At this moment in my life, it's a lot. And maybe at another moment in my life, it's not very much. But I will be content. I will not complain. Uh, th- this is an interesting thought because um, I read a stat during the week while I was um, preparing. I don't remember the exact numbers, which probably doesn't make this as helpful, but it was something along the lines of if you own a vehicle and you have a job um, you, uh, and you have a job that pays at least minimum wage, you automatically are in the top 15% wealthiest people in the world. Like, boom, automatically. You own a car, you have a job. Like that, you, leave, you leave 85% of the population in the world behind in wealth. 
That's incredible. So we're a rich people. Let's not kid ourselves. We're a rich people. And John Calvin had this to say about that side of the spectrum, right? So a lot of times we think contentment is having to do with when we don't have a lot. But when we think about contentment, when we do have a lot, Calvin said this, if a man knows how to make use of present abundance in a sober and temperate manner with thanksgiving, prepared to part with everything whenever it may be the good pleasure of the Lord, giving also a share to his brother according to the measure of his ability and is also not puffed up. There's a lot of conditions there, but it is also not puffed up. That man has learned to excel and to abound. This is a peculiarly excellent and rare virtue. May it be a virtue that we seek wholeheartedly to be the type of people that can be content with a lot, with much. So Philippians 4 shows us Paul's perspective um, from prison uh, on uh, what he is able to do now that he has learned the secret. Now I want you to go to 1 Timothy 6. And there's multiple places we could go in the scripture to talk about this, but we're just going to focus on these two this morning. 1 Timothy 6. Please turn in your Bibles there. 1 Timothy 6. And we're going to look at five verses, verses 6 through 10. This, this um, passage deals more explicitly with money, um, with your income, uh, secondarily with possessions and those things. Uh, but, but I do want us to think uh, clearly about this. Do we think that wealth and financial stability automatically equals a spiritually healthy heart and home? Do, do, we, do we fall into that ever? Because if we do, we're like Job's friends, Right? automatically, if you do this, then you get this. If you don't do this, then you don't get this. I think sometimes we're tempted to say, wow, look at them. They have their finances together. They're, they're spiritually healthy. I, I would want to warn us against that. Now, I do think you ought to strive to have your finances in order and work hard at doing that. I think that's good stewardship um, from the Lord. But imagine going to Job and seeing everything falling apart and his whole financial empire destroyed and say, what have you been doing? Job, what's, what's, what's wrong with your spiritual life? You've been cursing the Lord? You've been getting, not doing sacrifices? I think we would we'd be tempted to be Job's friends in Job's circumstance because I think we too tightly connect financial stability and accountability um, with a life that is well put together and spiritual. But Paul points out that many of the um, false teachers had somehow seen godliness as a pathway to wealth. They saw, if I can appear godly, if I can, if I can enter into a teaching and preaching ministry of the gospel, I could get rich. And Paul warns against that with very strong language here in 1 Timothy 6. He says this, verse 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. You see that this vision of Paul, it's, it's beyond right here and now. It's, it's, it's a much bigger vision. He sees beyond... And he says, if we brought nothing in and we can't take anything out, then contentment is great gain. Verse 8, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. So Paul's criteria is, do you have food and do you have clothes? Um, if you do, with, then you've got enough. That, that You've got what you need. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is a a challenge for us because we would look at these verses, I assume, because this is what I do. Well, I don't want to be rich. I I don't struggle with that but did you see that Chevy Silverado outside the Angel Stadium last night? And did you see that people, did you see that watch? Did you see, did you see, did you see, that looks nice. I'd like to have that. Do you see that? We ought to be careful before we excuse ourselves from this passage too quickly. Well, I, I don't want to be wealthy, so I don't, that doesn't apply to me. I think we ought to be very, very careful as we dive into this. It's very clear that Paul says there is a danger with great wealth. And the danger is not in the great wealth necessarily, but it is the danger is in the desire for riches. Because those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. And then the famous verse, verse 10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. 
It is in um, this place that Paul says godliness with contentment is great gain because he's using a different calculus. Uh, Paul is using a totally different uh, Excel spreadsheet. Um, He is using one that says pursue godliness, be content with what you have, and you are truly wealthy. Um, See, Paul, again, is raising our eyes from merely looking at our budget. You need to have a budget. That's a good way for you to steward God's resources that he's given to you. But if we only focus on our budget, there are bad months, right? Um, There are good months. And so are we supposed to just ride that roller coaster? No, what we need to do is we need to say, no, the Lord has given us much. He's given us enough. And so we are content with what he has given us and we are pursuing godliness. And therefore, no matter what your bank statement says or what your paycheck says, you are wealthy. And that sounds good. And there might be, I don't know, there, were, there weren't any, but there might be some amens there. And, and that's, <laughs> I thought it was a good place for one, but uh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, but it, it's in that place where we leave this room and it gets a lot harder, right? It's like, oh, that sounds really good, yeah. But when we leave this room, when we go to our homes, when we go to our places of work, when we watch TV, when we see the people around us, this is hard. This is difficult. This is something we ought to war for. We ought to fight for contentment. We ought to move towards contentment. We ought to move towards it because it actually is great gain. It is great wealth to be content. Some other passages that you can just write down. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read through several other passages that help us understand contentment. And then I'm going to get to our notes. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Why? Because God loves you. Because he is by your side. And he, as we sang this morning, he's enough. He is enough. So we ought to to really consider and think about what that verse has to say to us. He will never leave us or forsake us. That's the promise he gave to Joshua. He applies that promise to us if we keep ourselves from the love of money. Um, if you're in high school or college, I, have, I just want a, a quick word with you. If you are going to college or you want to go to college to get a good job and make lots of money, that's fine. But if that's it, that is dangerous. That is really very dangerous for you to use an education merely to get you to a certain pay level is dangerous because that what you are now doing is you are leveraging an education in, in order to get to a certain level of pay. And so perhaps this is why we have people that want to do um, certain uh, jobs merely because they pay lots of money. Listen, guys, um, God gave us work before the fall. Um, work is not something to kind of just uh, grit your teeth through and make as much money as you can so you can retire. That's a, that's a shallow, empty life. There's, there's not much gain there. There's not much gain. So as you go to college, as you look ahead to college, have a bigger view. Like, like you need to make money, right? To pay for your car and to pay for your insurance. Like that's, that's good. That's fine. I remember my senior year of college thinking, I'm engaged. Whoa, I need to get a job, right? Like, I'm real smart, but that kind of hit me. Kind of hit me like... I'm going to get married. I, I, I got to do this. And so that's, that's good. That's right. That is even um, in the right context, a godly thing. But on its own, it's dangerous. Very dangerous on its own. So pursue your education um, from a holistic point of view. See all of it. See relationships um, blooming. See learning new things, meeting new people, forming your inward self um, in a way that makes you more godly. Do all of that in your education. Okay? All right, Proverbs fifteen sixteen says, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. 
Proverbs 16.8 says, Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. It's better to have a little. It's better to have a little if it's done honestly. It's better to have a little if it keeps you from um, great troubles. And then one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, or passages, Proverbs 38 through 9, says this, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, a.k.a. daily bread. Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. And so this wise man in Proverbs says, Lord, give me what I need. I'll be content with what I need. I don't want, he says, I don't want to be rich because I might deny you. He also says, very honestly, I don't want to be poor because I don't want to steal and violate your commands. Give me what I need and I will be content with that. Jeremiah Burroughs was a Puritan pastor in England in the 1600s. And he he defined Christian contentment, as you'll see in your worship folder, in your notes, this way. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. And so now you'll see we've got a bunch of uh, contentment is not, contentment is not, contentment is not. In your notes, I want to say this is... Let's be very clear what contentment is not. And I think that definition helps us because of that key word, delights. There's a, there's a delight, there's a joy, there's a happiness, there's an enjoyment of being content. So contentment is not grim. Okay, that's actually not one of them. Don't write that down. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Contentment is not just this grim kind of, oh, well, I've got, I guess I got what I need. That's not at all what contentment is. That's not the picture of contentment. We're not to see Paul in prison going, well, this sucks, but I guess God gave me what I need. I guess I'll be content. I'll write the Philippians about it. No, that's not at all. That's not at all the the, the picture of Paul that we see. The picture of Paul is this one who's he's just overflowing with joy and love for these people while in this terrible situation. And he wants to communicate to them that he's learned that secret of being content. And he's like excited about it. And he's happy about it. And he wants to tell other people about it. If contentment is grim, you don't want to tell anybody else how to do it. Right? And nobody else looking at you wants to be that. Right? If that's what contentment looks like, no thank you. I'm content. Right? Well, okay, great. And I want to be something else. Okay? So, um, how many do we have here? Six things that contentment is not. And some of these overlap, I know. Um, I had more and I needed to chop it down. Okay, so number one, contentment is not complacency. Contentment is not complacency. This is what Terry Hall prayed this morning, okay? And this is exactly right. Contentment is not complacency. And I think that's how we most often view it. Um, is we see this kind of complacency. Um, so being content does not mean you don't go after uh, um, that, that, that next job or that higher position or that position with more pay. Okay? It does not mean you don't seek to excel at something. It does not mean you're just kind of complacently like, okay, I'm right here, I'm stuck. That's, that's not what contentment is. No, um, contentment is joyful. And I was going to give you passages for that, and I was like, and so I wrote my notes, see the whole book of Philippians. <laughs> just read the whole book. See the whole thing. Um, contentment is not complacency. It, it, it can't be. Because complacency leads us to a place where we're not striving, we're not working, um, we're, we're not seeking the glory of God, we're just kind of there. And just kind of sit there and don't do anything. But we have enough. <laughs> but but that's, not com- that's not contentment. Number two, contentment is not resignation. Okay, and not like Eeyore, right? Well, my house fell down, but I guess that's how it always goes. <laughs> that's not contentment. <laughs> Right? That's not contentment at all. Um, rather, it's hopeful. Contentment is hopeful. It's, it's future-oriented. It's looking ahead. Why? Because like I said before, we have a big God who's in control and we, see, we can see Him. We can see the future. Um, that, well, we may not see the future. We see Him there in the future and we know that He's there. And so we don't need to be resigned to contentment. Rather, not, rather we should be hopeful. Um, 
if we're discontent, if we're not content, listen to this quote by another Puritan, Richard Sibbs. He says, Satan has most advantage of discontented persons. Satan has most advantage of discontented persons as most agreeable to his disposition. Being the most discontented creature under heaven, he hammers all his dark plots in their brains. That's interesting. Um, I went back and read um, Genesis uh, two and three, and just looked at the creation story and looked at uh, Satan goes to Eve and says, "Did God really say?" And he begins to twist God's words, um, and he 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 gives her something false to go after. Wait, Eve, you shouldn't be content with the way this is. God's trapped you. Get out of this. Get take that fruit and eat it, and see how your eyes will be opened. Right. So he sows the seeds of discontent in Eve. You don't have enough. You need more. You need to eat that fruit and disobey God. So Satan loves discontentment because he is on his home field. And he knows how to work in discontented hearts. So, um, do not resign yourself to contentment. Be hopeful. Number three, contentment is not fatalistic. Okay, contentment is not fatalistic. Um, we, we don't believe in fate. <laughs> We believe in a sovereign God um, who is involved and in control of every atom in the universe. Um, and so contentment's not some fatalistic thing. Well, I guess this is how it ended up. And so this is the way it's supposed to be. Um, that, that's, not, that's not true at all. Because contentment being fatalistic means we've lost all trust and we're just kind of thrust in this situation. Rather, contentment trusts a sovereign God. We trust a sovereign God. He has us here for a reason. This doesn't just happen. We're, we're not, we didn't just fall into this. No, if, if we believe in the God of the Bible, then he is not sitting up in heaven watching us, right? Just looking around. Oh, look at that. Oh, wow, that was bad. No, he's involved. He's involved in his creation. He's not removed himself, right? That's why he sent Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Okay? He's with us. And so this is not some fatalistic um, way that we're supposed to conduct our lives. We're supposed to trust in a sovereign God. Number four, contentment is not dependent on personality type. Contentment is not dependent on personality type. Okay, So whether you're an extrovert, an introvert, wherever you fall, and whatever test you've taken, it tells you what kind of personality you have. Right? Or, or you just listen to what people are and you tell you what kind of personality you have. It does not depend on personality type. And, and we, I think we can, we can go this direction. Like, oh, they're, they're so quiet and peaceful. And so we automatically assume contentment. Or you're the quiet and peaceful person. I'm so quiet and peaceful. I must be content. Right? Which, which for some of us who are not like that, that, that bodes ill, right? That's not helpful. But it's not based on personality type. Jeremiah Burroughs, um, Definition was that it's, it's about this inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which doesn't mean you don't talk or you don't laugh or you're not excited. Um, what it's what it talking about is talking about something that transcends circumstances. So when your spirit is a certain way, you can adapt to the situations and things around you. When, you're, when your contentment is based on the circumstances, then it's, it's just external. It's merely a, it's merely a show. So, so contentment can't just be personality type. And so that also means, okay, that you don't, you don't just say, oh, well, well I, this is the personality type I have. I guess I can't be content because I'm just, I'm just driven. Well, no, it doesn't mean driven people can't be content. Um, we, we need to be careful because sometimes we, we kind of characterize um, ourselves or other people as certain personality types and they're stuck. That's, that's how they are. Uh, God can't work there because, that, no. So contentment is not dependent on personality type. And very related, number five, is contentment is not a mood. I feel content right now. Well, just wait. <laughs> just wait, okay? Turn on the news or something. I mean, do something. Go check your portfolio. I don't know. Like, it's not going to last. If it's just a mood, it, it's not going to last. Contentment is more than a feeling, okay? It, it is something that's, that's inward, that's deep, that's spiritual, that, that starts inside before it spreads out. So it can't, it can't be true of you that you're content unless it's in here. Which is not always broadcast to everyone. Okay? Um, so contentment, those two are related. Not dependent on personality type and it's not a mood. 
And then last, number six, contentment is not passive. Okay, contentment's not, in one sense, I guess I'll say this, in one sense it is passive because um, we're not in control. And so um, God is the one who's in control. But in every other sense, contentment is not passive. In fact, it's intensely active because it's war. Contentment is war against covetousness, which happens to be one of the Ten Commandments. Okay, so if you are content, it is only because you have slain covetousness. The problem is, covetousness is like a zombie and keeps getting back up, right? So, so this is a constant war. This is a fight that has to continue. So contentment cannot be passive. You can't just let it, oh, I'm just going to sit here and be content and let contentment hit me. Now look, look at Luke 12 real quick. Luke chapter 12. Here's another story that has to do with contentment. Jesus told this parable. This is a good one. They're all good. This is a really good one for right now. <laughs> Luke twelve thirteen. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard. Now, being on your guard is not passive. Okay, that is an active word. You, you, one uh, author said this, It's to make a distinct effort to keep oneself from doing something. So you're fighting yourself. You're fighting covetousness. You are actively fighting, okay, to not live like this. Look at the end of that verse. Okay, against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Your life does not, is not just, this is what I have, so this is who I am. That's not how this works. There's no equal sign there. And then Jesus tells a parable. In verse 16, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. What happened? Well, he was passive. He, he didn't actively fight against covetousness. So in order to be content, you don't just sit around, you sharpen your sword. Because covetousness is all around us. I was also reading an author who said, um, in the past few years, he had had every one of the Ten Commandments, <laughs> um, just as a guide, confessed to him, but nobody had confessed the sin of covetousness. And think about that. Isn't that interesting? No one had confessed to this pastor the sin of covetousness. People had come to him about adultery. People had come to him about lying. But no one had come to him about covetousness. Because it is, it's, it's insidious. It kind of gets in and, and we, we don't see it. We don't let it. Because, like Jesus said, we're not on our guard. So pick, pick up your sword. Sharpen it. Okay, put the armor back on. You have it for a reason. And now fight. So contentment's not passive. It can't be passive. It's, 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 a, it's an... Uh, upstream ride, right? You stop rowing, and what happens? You go back the other way. So it has to be active. Um, one author said, it is not a passive acceptance of the status quo. Well, this is the way things are, so this is the way things are. But the positive assurance that God has supplied one's need and the consequent release from unnecessary desire. You've been released from unnecessary desire. All right, now three areas to work on our contentment, and we'll... Well, I'll just close with these last few thoughts. Um, in our possessions, clearly. This includes your salary. This includes money. This includes your retirement. This includes the things that you buy, the things that you have, the things that you own. And the question I would ask is the, uh, is the uh, question that Jesus asked. Where's your treasure? Or maybe more importantly, who's your treasure? Who is your treasure? And where is it stored? Because if your treasure is your your kids or if your treasure is your retirement account or your boat or your car or your motorcycle whatever it is if that's where your treasure is what do we know about that that's where your heart is that's where your heart's going to be also and then the the indictment against this rich man in luke 12 was that he was not rich toward god so just some questions to ask yourself this week where's my treasure really where is my treasure 
what I get most excited about. Am I being rich toward God? Am I being rich toward God? Am I open-handed or tight-fisted toward others? Am I open-handed or tight-fisted toward others? Why do you have that vehicle? Why do you have that gift? Why do you have that money? Why do you have, why do you have, why do you have? It's certainly not, your, not yours, it's God's, so why do you have it? And, and we need to be the type of people that think in that direction. The other, the other uh, second one is in our circumstances. We have to work on contentment in our circumstances, right? We, we, we wrestle with this. Why did this uncontrollable thing happen to me? I don't like it. And that can easily lead to being discontent. So the question you ask yourself is, do I believe God has me where I am for a reason? Or did I just kind of end up here? God make a mistake? Ah, man, I was trying to get him over there. Or did God put you there for a reason? And if he did, why are you there? What does he have you there for? Uh, the last one is in our relationships. Contentment in our relationships. Um, honestly, I think one of the things we need to do a better job is, is of affirming singles and affirming those people that are not married, have not been married. Um, I think sometimes we, we make such a big deal, and we ought to make a big deal out of marriage, that sometimes we leave out the gift that God has given to certain people of singleness for the good of his kingdom. And so we ought to be content in the, in the relationships that God has put us in. Marriage, but then I'm also thinking, um, who do you work with? Who do you work side by side, shoulder to shoulder with? You get the contentment there. Am I just content to kind of sit here? This person's been brought into my life, but I'm just kind of, hmm. okay. Or, or am, I, am I content with the fact that God has actually brought this person into my life and I have an obligation and duty and a delight to share the gospel with them? Okay, three last things. Some reasons, Christ, some reasons, there's lots of reasons. Some reasons Christians can be joyfully content. Joyfully content. The first one is God knows all and he knows exactly what you need. Think about that. God knows what you need more than you know what you need. Right? And we've all learned that because we've all made plans. This is what we need to do. And then God changes that. Oh, okay, I guess that's not what we needed to do. Okay? Um, but Matthew 6.6 6 says that regarding, regarding prayer, he already knows what you need. He already knows. God knows what you need. So, so he has you in where, the place where you're at for a reason. Be content and be joyful about it. Matthew 7, um, Jesus teaches that God is a good father who gives good gifts. That's your next blank. God is a good father who gives good gifts. So we can be content because we know daddy loves us and he gives us good things when we ask for them. That's a, that's a content place to be. That's a great place to be. I've got a good dad who loves me and he gives me good gifts. And he also is perfect, so he gives me the right gift at the right time for the right reason. And the last reason, Christian, that you can be joyfully content is because God gave us Jesus. He gave us Jesus. That's how you can be content. How much does God love you? He gave his only son. Romans 8, 26-39. This is long. Let me read it and then we'll be done. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know, and we know, we don't guess, we don't hope this is true, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For who? For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What's the illustration of that? Verse 32. He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he gave Jesus, he gave it all. <laughs> so he'll provide for your needs. You, you can know that. You, if he gave you Jesus, he'll give you what you need. 
100% of the time. You can take that one to the bank. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. What's he doing there? Interceding for us. Wow. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long, for we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. And then Paul's words here are beautiful. For I am sure, I am confident, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things that come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What else do you need? What else do we need? We got Jesus. We got salvation. We got eternal life. And in that package comes everything you'll ever need from a God who has all the resources that we need. Amen? So let's go from this place. That's good. Yeah, amen. And now we're going to go from this place and it's going to get harder. It's, a, it's easy in these padded seats with the air conditioning on and surrounded by Christians to go, yeah. And it's harder to go home and step on a Lego and fling something across the room and go, why do we... Right? And all of a sudden it's gone. So the words of Fanny Crosby will close us out. As an eight-year-old blind girl, she said, oh, what a happy child I am, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. Lord, thank you that you're enough, that you've given us what we need. Help us to see it. Open our eyes to see that we have every reason to be content. We have every reason to rest and what you've given us. We can trust you to take care of our needs. We can trust you to give us what we need because you gave us Jesus. You gave your only son. And you sacrificed him on a cross in our place so we might have eternal life. Man, you love us, God. You love us. Help us not to doubt you but rather to see the things you've given to us and say, wow, God loves me. And then, Lord, help us not to keep that under a bushel, but that we would shine our light for the world to see, that we might be those who don't complain or murmur or grumble, but that we would be content and joyful in the places you have put us, in the, with the people you've put us with, with the money and the possessions and the jobs that you've given to us. And Lord, from there, may we be bold and confident to share the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection for our sin in our place, securing eternal life for us, that others can have that. So God, help our contentment to be an evangelistic tool so that your glory will spread to all the nations. In Jesus' name, amen.